A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Hawk Week podcast. I'm Hawk Week editor Matthew Appleby and today I'm with natural pest control expert Julian Ives of Dragonfly Limited. Now Dragonfly is in product development and supply of natural pest control, pollination and microbial based horticultural products to retail, amenity and professional horticulture. And in Julian's new book, Biological Pest Control, published by Crowwood, he takes his professional knowledge and gives it to the consumer. So welcome, Julian. Hi, Matt. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. No problem. Great to have you here. So how do you put across that information which you've gained working with professionals to the consumer? Yeah, well, it's, it's a big challenge. I mean, we, we mainly do it through our website. Um, we try and make our website as informative as possible. Um, but obviously, one of the reasons I've published the book is to to also help with that, to give people a a guide to how to really start with biological control. The book is aimed at um, sort of semi-professionals and professionals and consumers and really trying to give people who are just starting with biological control um, an intro and um, a guidance to the subject. Great. So why, why do you think it's important? Why does this book have to exist? Well, I don't think there's many other books like it. Um, there are sort of entomological books, which will go into great detail about the life cycles of insects and how to identify various insects. But there's actually very few books out there which actually tell you how to use biological control, and especially not for the sort of um, consumer type customer who may be just um, starting with the subject. So can you give me a couple of examples of, for a consumer who is just starting? Yeah, it's 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 somebody who's got a, a keen interest in, in reducing pesticides in their garden and they want to switch to using natural pest control methods, whether it be um, beneficial insects or, or just looking at ways of not using toxic chemicals. And those might be people who are just hobby gardeners, but they also might be um, professionals who are working on amenity sites where they're trying to reduce their pesticide usage but they don't really have a, a background in, in biological control and are looking for a bit of uh, a starting point, if you like. 
Oh, great. What are the rules about what you do? I guess there's some legal advice in place? Yeah, I mean, what what we deal with are, are all natural organisms and natural beneficial insects. We're not dealing with any sort of GM type issues or anything. Everything that we supply is, is a natural product. Um, there are very strict rules about uh, having native insects to work with in the UK. So we can't just bring in a, a foreign insect, if you like, or a non-indigenous insect and, and, and start using it. That's all very regulated. Um, there are exceptions to that when we can bring in certain insects, but there are always um, quite strict licenses attached to doing that. I see. Now, there's a revised policy to license the release of augmentative anthropod biological control agents outside of glasshouses and into other protected structures, such as polytedals in England. I managed to get through that one all right. So what is that new rule? I'm not sure I know, to be quite honest. <laughs> Might be outdated, that one. Um, I mean, as I say, these things are very regulated. And um, the general rule of thumb is that if, 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 if an insect can't be proved that it can survive the winter, so therefore if, if, it, if there's a chance that it will survive a winter in the UK um, and it's a non-Indigenous insect to the UK, then it generally won't get a release licence um, for use in the UK. Um, so the reason for saying that is that a lot of the times we're applying for these licences is for use inside glasshouses and therefore we often get tropical uh, type pests in glasshouses which wouldn't normally occur in the UK. And sometimes we can uh, apply to DEFRA for a release license to get a beneficial insect against that particular insect. But if that particular insect escaped from the glasshouse, um, it wouldn't be able to survive in the conditions um, in the UK. I see, I see. Um, Now, I want to ask you a bit more about uh, efficacy. Now, in the past, for want of a better word, growers used to nuke things and they were sure they would die. But there's always a feeling amongst growers that if they use something natural, that it won't work quite as well. So how can you reassure people that using a product which isn't a synthetic will work just as well on this pesky mite? Yeah, well, there's a couple of points there. I mean, synthetics, yes, the sort of traditional approach with them is that you spray something and then, you know, within a few hours or a day later, then you'll you'll see a, 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 a very large decrease in the number of, of pest insects. Um, and that is true to start off with, but the problem is that insects are clever and they become resistant to insecticides. So the more you use that insecticide, the less effective it becomes. So effectively, your, your usage of that particular product is limited. So that in itself is limiting. With a, with a beneficial insect or a natural enemy, um, they are consuming uh, or they might be parasitizing or in some way um, feeding or host feeding on on the target insect and the insect itself has has no defense against that or at least they haven't yet so they cannot defend themselves against um, natural organisms like biological control so that in its, itself makes them more effective than synthetic insecticides and i suppose that um, synthetics, um, no matter how much traditional growers want to carry on using them, they are diminishing in number. Um, and uh, what's next? I mean, what's gone recently which um, was important to growers and what's coming next, do you think? Well, I think what's coming next is there are going to be um, a lot more biopesticides, which which are very useful and they, 
they do fill a gap um, with some of these synthetics uh, leaving the, the arena, if you like. But the problem with biopesticides is that very expensive to register. They have to go through nearly as much cost as synthetic insecticides. So there's always going to be a limit to the amount of them coming on the market just because of the cost. Um, on the other side of that, the amount of beneficial insects that we're getting access to is increasing because the, the big producers um, are always coming up with new beneficial insects that we can access. So there is a steady stream of new natural enemies that we can access, um, but getting hold of new um, insecticide type products is, is more difficult. What are your sort of top natural enemies? Um, you know, I'm thinking of the uh, the Swirsky mite, for instance. I mean, what what else would you say is is sort of top of your list? Well, yeah, there's there's quite a few over recent years. I mean, when I first started um, with biocontrol, I think we had you know two or three beneficial insects we were working with, and now we've got you know literally dozens, and some of those have had a big impact. Um, yes, you mentioned Sversky mite. That's that's been a a game changer for control of insects like thrips, um, and it will also feed on whitefly eggs. So that's that's been a very important, relatively recent addition to the armory. But also more more basic insects like um, lacewings and lacewing larvae, although they've been around for some years, um, we're beginning to find out that they can be used on a whole variety of insect pests. So. Quite often with, with, a, with a beneficial, say, like with Sversky, they're quite limited to the sort of insects that they will attack. But with something like lacewing larvae, we've seen that they will feed on aphids, they will feed on thrips, even a little bit on uh, leafhoppers. And the more work we do with them, more, the more we see that they can be a really useful tool against uh, multiple insect pests. So I think at the moment, lacewing larvae is one of the ones I'm uh, most curious about. Are there insects which just can't be beaten at the moment? You know, the sort of cockroaches of the insect world, like vine weevil, for instance. Well, with vine weevil, um, there is a bit of a sort of holy grail to try and find something which will kill the adults. Um, we can use nematodes against the larvae, and that's very effective. Um, so that that is that is a very good, effective form of biological control. But um, to get the adult stage of the life cycle, that is more difficult. There's quite a few companies looking to try and develop traps for the adults try and find something which will draw them into some kind of trap but um, nobody really has come up yet with anything which is more attracted to a vine weevil than eating a plant so um, that's that's a difficult one tell us a bit more about nematodes and what they can be used on well they're, they're another group um, in the bio armory if you like that um, the use of has, has greatly expanded over recent years so they used to be really fairly limited to say vine weevil or slugs um, but we're now finding they can be used in quite a lot of different situations um, and also they can be used above ground I think traditionally everybody thought they only had to be used in compost or soil but we're now using them against things like caterpillars and we're actually spraying them onto leaves um, and they're actually being effective on a, on a much wider range of insects than than we used to use them and I think for um, particularly for, for hobby gardeners um, Nematodes are quite a sort of easy um, biological to understand and use. Um, it's not something which is too unrelated to actually spraying because you are actually spraying the nematode on. Now, I mean, are they easy to use though? Is there a danger that you, you know, you'll kill all your nematodes before you actually use them? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's one of the things with we're trying to get the information out um, about biocontrol, that there are very, um, very strong guidelines that need to be adhered to for effective use. And with nematodes, uh, there's a couple of sort of provisos that you really need to focus on. The first is moisture and water. So they, they need lots of, um, lots of moisture and lots of water to be effective. So if you're using them, for instance, um, again, something like a chafer grub and you're trying to water them into a, a rock hard lawn, um, then they'll never necessarily get through the, the lawn surface to, to where the chafers are. So you need to really work on the irrigation side. Um, and the other side of it is they, they do like moisture and they are um, not very good with UV. So if you apply them on a bright sunny day, um, that will kill them off quite rapidly. So the conditions you use them in are very important. So you need really an overcast, um, dull day with um, sort of quite high humidity for the, for the best conditions to apply nematodes in. Now you mentioned slugs, another um, creature that does like a bit of moisture, but uh, there wasn't much moisture this summer, so there weren't many slugs. So how, how is climate change changing what you do? I think it's um, the, the biggest thing I see over the last few years is it's extending the pest season. So we we used to sort of expect pests in certain seasons, if you like, or certain months of the year. But now we see that that season is expanding greatly. So we see things like aphids uh, and whiteflies continuing much longer than they used to. Um, that the sort of season of their activities is definitely increasing um, and their sort of severity is increasing because higher temperatures obviously make them reproduce quicker as well. And I mentioned slugs, you mentioned slugs. Slugs is always at the top of people's minds when it comes to pests, particularly um, home gardeners. So what, what's your, your key plan for getting rid of slugs? Well, yeah, I'm always a, a little bit cautious with slugs because not all slugs are harmful. So um, it's really the, the ones, the sort of small slugs, the ones which are underground uh, feeding on things like potatoes, those ones we really want to get rid of. Um, and those ones, you know, we can control quite effectively with things like slug nematodes. Um, but also, you know, some, some of the species you get on the surface could be damaging as well. But that that is um, more difficult to control with a, with a nematode when they're on the surface. Um, so I do quite like to recommend the, the sort of um, iron-based slug pellets, although they are a slug pellet. They are harmless to wildlife and they will kill um, snails and any sort of harmful uh, surface feeding slugs. So they're, they're quite a useful addition to have. So that's the ferric pellets because obviously lost metaldehyde as, as, as a more fierce kind of control. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, I noticed the RHS recently has stopped publishing its list of its top 10 pests. Basically, they're saying hug a slug, pests don't exist anymore. So um, what's <laughs> your feeling about that? <laughs> Well, I wouldn't go so far as say the hug a slug, but <laughs> um, yeah, I think with that top 10 pests, it, it was not always the most um, common pests that people were seeing. It was the sort of ones that were grabbing people's attention. So you would you would see insects in there, which yeah, they, they're a problem, but maybe not necessarily the biggest problems that people face. I think what we've seen over the last couple of years um, is a massive increase in things like um, caterpillars, um, particularly with the box tree moth this summer, we saw a huge increase in box tree moths and the damage that, that um, their caterpillars cause. Oh, indeed. Um, I'm talking to the RHS, Botanic Gardens. You you work on developing programs for for them and for amenity horticulture. So, how does that work? 
Yeah, so every every site is is different, if you like. So what we like to do is to, if we're working with a botanic garden or a national trust site or an RHS site, is we like to visit those sites and and go uh, around the sites with the managers and and map the sites and see what the pests are and what the particular problems they are, and then we will will develop a uh, a bespoke program to to control the pests that each site has, because particularly with botanical gardens, you know they will have often very well-established plant collections with all sorts of exotic type plants in and you can get some quite unusual pests in there so yeah every site is different there isn't a a sort of roadmap we can roll out that will that will fit every site. No interesting so how else does your business work how how do you sort of find your 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 consumers who are actually buying your products? Yeah, what was we, we say we have two two sort of sides of the business. The, the the part we just mentioned with the the professionals, but also the the consumers, and we we do find the two interlinked really because obviously a lot of our consumer customers are visiting RHS and botanic gardens, and we like them to to go on site and see the biologicals working. And when I talk to people who are working on those sites, they they're often bombarded with questions about the biologicals. So. When you get professional sites using the bios, it, it knocks on very well to the consumer because they get confidence in using biological control and think, oh, right, yeah, we're going to try this at home. Um, so that's one of the ways we, we try and get across to the consumer. But obviously also with um, with our website, that, that's the sort of reference point, And we try and get as much people, as many visitors as we can to the website as possible. So what do you see as the future in your sector? Um, obviously, you I guess you see growth, but at the expense of what? I mean, do you, do you, is that shelf on the soup uh, in the garden centre? Is that going to go? Well, I think I think it largely has to to very much compared to what it used to. I mean, I think when you go to most garden centres now, the the sort of pesticides area is pretty small compared to what it used to be, um, and the products that are there are often just fairly similar but repackaged. Um, so there's a very limited selection of, of sort of insecticide type products in garden centers already um what do you replace it with yeah it is difficult in the garden center sector because obviously it's not easy to put a live product on a shelf some years ago we did um test putting uh, nematodes in fridges in garden centers but it didn't really take off and i think the the best way for the consumer to buy biologicals really is online because it's a it's a fast quick efficient way of getting the product in good condition straight to the end user so i think online sales of of biologicals is the way for for consumers to get hold of, of biologicals in a quick and efficient way and what about on the professional side what's the future well on the professional side i think it's just getting more and more um different types of crops um switched to to using biologicals um, and there's been massive progress in that over the last few years. When I first started, we were really just dealing with tomatoes, cucumbers and a few peppers. But now it's sort of spread out into ornamentals. And there's been a huge growth in the use of biological control in, in soft fruit. And, and that's one of the biggest growth areas, I think, for the, the big bio companies is, is, is dealing with soft fruit growers because they're using biological control in, in a huge way now. And what about in the immunity side? On the immunity side, yeah, it's it's always a little lagging a little bit behind the professionals. I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just that it tends to happen that the products will be developed for professionals first, 
Um, and then we will take those products from the professionals. When I say professionals, I mean um, the grower market. So they'll be developed for growers first. Um, and then we will see what the growers are using and how we can adapt them for use in, in sort of amenity situations. The amenity market itself is not really big enough in, in many cases to develop a specific bio just for it. Um, there are exceptions to that for things like um, turf pests, where obviously they're being used in quite large scale. But but generally, we tend to take the products from the grower sector and adapt them to to the amenity situation. No, indeed. So, um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you mentioned that that turf sector, and that is pretty crucial. We've just had had Soltex, and uh, you know, the leather jacket is always you know subject of lots of of, of talks there. So, is that sort of curable just with a nematode dose, or or, or what? I think it's. Um... It, it's it's quite it can be quite challenging, um, particularly if you get a huge uh, population of something like chafers or leather jackets. Um, it can take quite um, a lot of um, work to, to to reduce that population significantly. I think the mindset is with a, a lot of customers is okay. I put nematodes on, therefore all my chafer grubs should be dead, and it doesn't quite work like that, unfortunately. So you often have to apply you know, sort of multiple times to, to really reduce that population. And, and obviously there is a cost uh, involved with that. So we've we've got to continue working on refining the, the application techniques, making sure that the, the nematodes get to where they need to be in an efficient way um, and get the timing right. The timing is also crucial. We don't want the nematodes to go on too early or too late. Now, lastly, I was just talking to Cleve West at Chelsea in May this year, and he pointed out some holes in some some beech tree leaves on one of the show gardens, and he said it shouldn't be marked down for this. You should get marked up for this because it's a natural environment. Caterpillars should be here, and you should have birds eating the caterpillars, and it's all good. Um, and you should get extra marks for not using anything. I guess that that's quite a different perspective. Yeah, I, I can I see where it's coming from. I think it is a balance, and and particularly with amenity sites, we we try and try and encourage sort of building up an ecosystem of, of beneficials and a little bit of pest. You know, we're not going for the sort of nuclear option where there is no pest at all. And I think you can you can be a little bit more tolerant in the means of situation than probably you can on a commercial crop. But in an amenity situation, I would always encourage to try and get that that ecosystem built up. So you've got a, a residual background of beneficial insects doing the job for you all the time. Um, and maybe you just have to tolerate a little bit of pest damage and explain to the visitor that, um, okay, you can see a bit of pest damage there, but if you look on the underside of that leaf, you can also see the, the beneficial insects at work. And that, and that become an area of interest rather than an area of sort of negativity. No, that's brilliant. Thanks for that, Julie. No, so uh, a bit of tolerance. That's good, good, good to hear. Now, we always end up our podcast with the same question, which is, what's your favourite plant? What plant would you take to a desert island? Yeah, you mentioned this to start, and I, and I was struggling because I, I don't know if I've got a, a particular one. I've got a. I'm getting very interested in 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 jungle gardening at the moment, and trying to talk, create, turn my garden into a sort of miniature jungle. So, I think I'm going to say something like a a banana, um, just for the interest value and the challenge of trying to grow it in the UK. Brilliant. Okay. No, I, I I think a banana. I don't think anyone's chosen that before. So I think that's an excellent choice. So. Thanks very much to Julian Ives from Dragonfly, the author of new book, Biological Pest Control. I'm Matthew Appleby, your Horticulture Week editor. Make sure you never miss a Hawk Week podcast. Subscribe to or follow Hawk Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or Google Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you're interested in producing a podcast with Hot Week, contact hotweek at haymarket.com. So once again, thanks to Julian Ives. I'm Matthew Appleby and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.